Hi, and welcome to the Defenseless Moments Podcast. I'm Hunter Visser, and today I'm joined by our special guest, Gary Higby, for our very first interim episode. Gary and I are going to be talking about his experience when he first heard about the three sources of Unexpected. He's going to share some of his thoughts as he first heard about this 20 years ago, and also some advice for safety professionals in the safety industry today in 2020. For those of you who don't know Gary Higby or some of his history, I just want to share a couple of his accolades and some of the awards that he's won. The list is really long, so I had to trim this a little bit, but he's a Vietnam veteran. He's won the Distinguished Service and Safety Award from the NSC, which is one of the highest level awards you can receive in the safety industry in the United States. He's also won the Gary Hawk Award from the Iowa Governor's Advisory Board. He's the CSP of the Year for the ASSP. He's an engineer by trade, specifically a mechanical engineer with well over 50 years of experience. He was SafeStart's very first customer, helped write SafeStart, and actually had the very first videos filmed at his plant over 20 years ago. He's the co-author of his and Larry Wilson's book, Inside Out, and we couldn't be more grateful to have Gary here on our very first interim episode. So, Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and and sort of your history in this? Well, great. First thing, thanks, Hunter. Thanks for asking me uh, to be on. Uh, you know, it's a uh, it's been an interesting career to say the least, and all those things are are pretty true. But I think uh, my claim to fame is that I really care about protecting people and uh, and organizations from the accidents that happen all the time. So that's kind of my background. Uh, yeah, you covered a whole lot of years there. So we'll, we'll kind of start with, uh, eventually, I, Deere, John Deere is who I worked for originally, started in the 1960s. I worked in the factory, and I also worked, uh, eventually would work as a supervisor, and I would end up going into product engineering, back doing a little bit more engineering work, and all that was, uh, was great, but that engineering department had the worst safety record, as far as I know, in the whole corporation. We were just terrible. And uh, I got an offer I couldn't refuse. My boss said that I'd get it straightened out or my replacement would. So that, <laughs> that was kind of my introdu- introduction to safety. Uh, I took it seriously. Sir, I did all the things that all of us do. I looked at policies and procedures and rules and regulations and what we needed to do and how we could improve it and Actually started, I think, the first safety committee ever at John Deere. That may not be true, but at least really? as, far, as far as I know, it was the only one ever. And all this time, I'm gathering data and trying to figure out what really causes injuries. I guess that's the engineer in me. And and we ended up, we, it, because it's all of us, uh, got that department performing so well from a safety standpoint that I could actually perform everything we needed with fewer people because I didn't have people on light duty or off work all the time. And we actually, we just were better organized. And so my intention was not to be a safety person. Uh, Life was, I liked it as an engineer, everything was fine. And then one day I got told I was going to be the safety engineer for that plant. So instead of just having this area that did product development and product engineering and testing, we were all over the country, actually, with our test equipment. Now I got to be 
uh, the guy yeah, or the gal. And that, that was a shock for me. And I was not voluntary. They literally cleaned out my desk. Uh, when I came into work on a Monday morning, none of my stuff was in my office. And I walked up to human resources, assuming I'd been fired for some reason. And I saw my name <laughs> on the door. So, so, so that was so, my so story. And, and they you stiff know, armed I, you into improving safety and then basically fired you into a new job. Yeah, Maybe not fired, fired but dude, dude. Yeah, pretty close, <laughs> pretty close. Uh, anyway, it's been an interesting career. And I had the opportunity to learn a lot. And it's probably the hardest thing that you will ever do is trying to manage safety. Productivity is pretty visible. You know, if you have a problem where it's at, you you. And I'm saying it's easy to solve the problem, but you at least know it. It's visible. It's perfectly visible. Quality is kind of the same way, maybe not as visible. Maybe you're produce, not producing as, as high quality a product as you'd like, whether it's a training program or an actual piece of equipment. Uh, safety is harder because if we have an accident, it's pretty easy to look at all the factors that fit into that. But that's not where we work. We work in prevention. Yeah. We work in risk analysis and what's the risk. So I took the engineering skills of trying to analyze the risk, failure type risk, and took them into the safety field and found out weird things. Like, uh, <laughs> do you know, uh, the week before the shutdown we had every year and the week after our injury rates went up? Really? Yeah. And, and, and not only that, I could tell you what kinds of injuries we had because the week before we had acute style injuries and the week after they came back to work after the two week shutdown, they were more acute. Well, that kind of makes sense. Your brain goes on vacation the week before because you're thinking about other things. And then when you come back, your body's lost its industrial athlete toning and you come back and you have sprains and strains. Well, then I said, well, that's cute. And then I looked at well, let's each one of these people have individual vacation weeks too. It isn't just this shutdown. And I looked to try and figure out what they did before and after. And it ended up that 60% of my accidents happened in what I would have expected 30% of them to be because we just in that week before, week after, we're so high. So that was my first introduction to looking at least at human factors in a very a beginning stage like kindergarten because I knew there were things going on and it was the same job before they left and it was the same job when they came back and the hazards are exactly the same. Nothing's changed. Well, what changed? Well, the human changed. Well, what made them change? So that was my first. So I kind of had an idea that that uh, human factors were a piece of this thing. Yeah. And that was pretty early. That's pretty early. I mean, e easily in the early 80s, late 70s, I knew that it wasn't all um, just the risk or the system. And then so many accidents happen that you fall down the steps and the steps are fine or you, you turn real quick and you blow out a knee or whatever. Yeah. And so I was trying to figure out, well, we got to look at the whole picture here and I really struggled with it. And I had a lot of data. I moved on to a different plant. This is even before Larry and I got connected and I had already figured out that, uh, states were an issue. 
obviously the system was an issue. The way we design stuff, sometimes we design systems that create stress and strain. We saw that in the ergonomics area. That's a different type of human factor. But we also saw it in a plant where we've got to get this shipment out of here by 4 o'clock today. And that would increase injuries. Just that very simple thing. Rush orders. Yeah, rush orders or, or something out of spec or just anything that was out of the ordinary. And the employees do a great job of trying to make sure we get done. And they understand productivity better than they understand safety. And they get complimented for getting the job done rather than complimented for doing it safely. So it didn't take long before I realized that Things like states and airs and the way we manage and how we manage and the concentration on key performance indicators that kind of drives stress into the organization. Mm -hmm. Because even if it isn't really important that you get that out by four o'clock, you think it's really important to get it out by four o'clock. And that's when shortcuts start happening or moving without looking. So I kind of had an idea but the data didn't come together. When I look at all of my serious injuries and then those that were less serious, they didn't all fall under a mechanical failure mode like everybody thought. We thought something went wrong with the equipment or the design of the system was wrong and, and nothing was fitting together. And, and that led me eventually to hear Larry speak at a meeting of kind of the high high rollers of safety, lots of different companies, lots of different manufacturing type things yeah. and production. And, and this was his original pitch for SafeStar, wasn't it? Yeah, it was his original one. This Canadian guy goes in there. He's got this black wavy hair, and I certainly <laughs> don't have black hair. I, I was kind of peppered right then. Now I'm, now I'm straight white. I don't know anything about the guy. Uh, it came off originally as like kind of, wow, he's like way out there. But he was a behavioralist. And I'm an engineer. And we don't even speak the same language. But the yeah. more he talked, the more, frankly, I thought he stole some of my stuff. Because at that time, <laughs> I had, yeah, I had, I had come up with a thing called Five Stages to World Class Safety. It talked about. Compli discovery and compliance and then it was behavioral based safety which that's the field he originally came out of and then I talked about peer-to-peer -peer observations and how you'd eventually get to the utopia but there was too many gaps in the system it didn't it didn't really all flow together until Larry goes up to the board he's, he he took the he put a triangle up there and that triangle was my a part of my diamond. It was the top three sections of my diamond. So I'm all upset with him. And I think he's stealing my stuff. And by that time I'd already published a couple articles and now I am really into the safety thing. Cause I think I got something different, but I can't get the data to fit together. It doesn't fit together. And then he puts up three sources of unexpected. And I just paused because now, all the accidents that I couldn't fit into one of these three boxes uh, fit. Everything fit. So, uh, and, the equipment. And Gary, of course, yeah, you're going to go into it. So, of course, the three sources of unexpected are the equipment, 
other people and the self area right. doing something yeah. unexpected. So early on, you, I thought mechanical failure or inappropriate use of equipment, there was a couple things that fit in there, was the big deal. But I never got more than 20%. Even if I stretched the data to try and make it mechanical failure, it, I got to 20%. And we're talking about we're in the 70s and late 60s. But I never, I never got, if you ask employees, they think 80% of the time they're hurt by the equipment. Maybe it's 90. And, yeah. and it never even came close to that. And then I tried to set, well, um, other people making mistakes can cause you to have injuries or cause you to make mistakes. So that was a, a bigger piece. Well, and, and we also like that one. Like people tend to prefer to blame it on somebody else rather than looking at themselves too. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think Larry mentioned, thing. Larry mentioned it in the webcast, how he discovered it on his own. And, and then, and then that self area just hit me right in the face but not from a standpoint of it's somebody's fault. It's mm-hmm. just just now we have a way of talking about almost almost every incident, unless it's an act of God or nature or a tornado or something like that, fits into either equipment malfunction or failure, other people doing something that might injure you, or you doing something you never intended to do in the first place. And it took me a long time to realize how big that self area was because my natural tendency would be it's it's not the employee, it's equipment or it's a process. And that's, I'm an engineer, that's how I'm taught. But as soon as you figure out human error and you start looking at being an athlete and why some days are so much different than others and or, mm-hmm. or pe- people performing perfectly well for year after year and then this particular day they don't perform well or or migraine headaches so physical and emotional things that happen and rushing is almost always self-imposed although we do with the way we manage things kind of do that so the three sources of unexpected it all of a sudden opened up my opportunity to look at hey uh, I can design systems that are tremendously safe, but I can't make them perfect. Yeah, because there's a person involved. There's a person involved. And then I actually got it even down to this point. And, and Hunter, I don't know that I've even had this discussion with Larry or not. But when you're looking at systems, you're trying to design them. We all think we can make them perfect. That, that yeah. the interface with the employee is not a dangerous thing. But there are three areas we can't. However you load the system, however you unload the system, and how you maintain the system all require employee interaction at the ground level. And you can't engineer those out. You, you, you just can't, you can't get those. So, so, so now, even though I think we're starting to understand human factors and we're doing a better job of designing systems, we still are struggling because we think we can actually get rid of all the hazards and we can't. And all that came out of the three sources of unexpected kind of look at that. So, so today when I, when I design systems, I try and have the human factors up front. Yeah. And, and build in some safeguards to prevent those human factors in the first place. Exactly. Exactly. 
So when you heard about these three sources of unexpected at this meeting, um, I guess at some point you went from Larry stole my stuff to, wow, he figured this out on his own. Um, so what did you do next? Like well, right we, after that pitch. Well, after the pitch and after I calmed down, it became obvious to me that that we had something or he had something. and I, But I didn't know for sure what it was. And, of course, I'm talking to the other people in the room who are all kind of like me. You know, they're engineers and yeah. safety people and that kind of stuff. And Larry seems to think that everybody bought into it, but not everybody bought into it, but some did. And, yeah. and those conversations were amazing. The uh, railroad industry, uh, airplane manufacturing, agricultural manufacturing, oil and gas, um, electrical generation. Uh, the nuclear guy was particularly interested in it. Uh, the mm -hmm. uh, coal-fired plants were a little bit different, but we all of us kind of thought there was something there, but we didn't know what that something was. But yeah. we all knew one thing. The history of safety by that time, by the time we had that meeting, we had flattened out. The improvement that we got in the six, late 60s, early 70s, into the 80s, that improvement slowed down to almost a flat line. In fact, it's still pretty flat today if you look at uh, recordable injuries. Yeah. So uh, that said, okay, we're doing a lousy job. I mean, we're, we're doing okay. And then it, then it dawned on me that most of the stuff I was doing was to prevent liability. It wasn't to prevent injuries. Yeah. You're almost going from it at, at the wrong angle in some ways, yeah. protecting yeah. the company, not the person. Yeah. If you, if you don't do the training, like you're supposed to every year. And so my system for that was, if it was annual training this year, I did it in December, but next year I do it in November to make sure I didn't miss anybody. And the next year I do it in October. <laughs> so all I did was make sure I didn't get myself in trouble for not doing training that may not have been effective training, but it, but it certainly was effective with respect to uh, our liability. Well, and it's funny when we look back on some of that um, sort of repeat training can almost increase complacency year after year too. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I just uh, wrote a note to Kevin Cobb, one of my one of uh, Larry's employees, Safe Start employee, and he's been in the business for a lot of years. And he asked me some questions, and one of the things that I brought up was was how that. <clears throat> Although we don't always look at things right, and we don't always look at things in a way that is uh, totally beneficial. But yeah, uh, so the big deal for me was that Three Sources of Unexpected gave Larry some um, legitimacy. And, and granted, he was the Lone Ranger. I mean, uh, he, he was talking about stuff that nobody would even want to talk about. It, it was always... The system or is always management, and that's not true. And if you just think about it, it's not true at home because you are the manager. You're the one that's in charge of the system. So when you're at home or you're on the athletic field, you are in charge. You, so it isn't always management. It's, it's sometimes it's the state, and that's what uh, he figured out. So good for him. I appreciate it. And then, yeah, we wrote that book together, Inside Out. And that 
the middle of that is really a walkthrough of how I changed. Like I went from going, this is like voodoo that, and, and the migration and how the states and the airs and the critical air reduction technique gave me a different window to look through mm -hmm. at injury causation. And then as the more I went through it, the window got bigger. It wasn't just a little window in a door. It became a big picture window. And then when you get to that stage, now you're saying, okay, don't forget your basis, your, your rules and policies and procedures and design. Don't, don't forget that, but understand they impact people. Yeah. Those, the people are a variable. And, and if we don't give them an opportunity to recognize the variable they're in themselves, then we have to protect them from that variable. And given that there are three points in any operation that you can't really protect them completely, it tells us a little bit about how to look at our accident causation and what parts it's there. And it tells us a little bit why maintenance workers are more prone to get injured than some. Uh, it tells us why construction is such a uh, dangerous occupation, as well as commercial fishing. And there's a number of them that are that are there. But if you look at the states and then you add a little bit of weather, a little bit of rushing for whatever reason, it, it gets really, it really gets tough. Yeah. It's tough to do injury causation analysis and prevention. It gets tough. So, so Gary, I've got a sort of one last question for you, which is after, you know, 50 years in industry, many of those working in safety, I know you're getting close to retirement. Where would you like to see safety go in the next 20 years? <clears throat> Boy, that's a great question. Uh, I would rather talk about uh, management in the next 20 years. Okay. And I'll just give you this piece because I think management causes the states. So I will give you an example of a, of a, something I ran into that I think is absolutely ridiculous, but it gives us an idea. We went through a 30-year period where some of the greatest minds in industry, uh, Welsh was one of them, uh, GE story, uh, lots of data analysis, lots of what I call key performance indicators, lots of ways to look at the managing your operation better, more efficiently. I think we've morphed now to a point where we are putting too much stake on key performance indicators and that some of them are faulty. Mm -hmm. they, and when you, when you take bad data and you react to it, whatever you react to it with is not going to be effective. So I'll give you the example. I'm working with a small company. They are in the uh, upper Midwest and they are basically broke. Yeah. They make parts for the automotive industry. They're, uh, their management, uh, their their CEO, he and I went to uh, graduate school together. And so we had had a friendship and we ended up running into each other and over a cup of coffee and he talked about his job and how the, the facilities were going to close. Some were going to go to Mexico. Some were being sold off. And he just was lamenting. So I went and visited one of his factories and I walked through and I was given car blanche. I could walk anywhere I wanted to. And I'm walking through the factory 
And what I noticed was when I, it's early, it's 6.30 in the morning. I'm in a department where of the 20 machines that are there, nobody's working on them yet. They are all running. They're running. <laughs> they're, they're not making any parts. Yeah, they're, yeah, a little odd and not running. And so there's an old timer over in the corner. So I walk over to him and, and you got to be a real old timer for me not to look old timer more <laughs> than you. And I walked over and I, I introduced myself and we talked a little bit and I said, um, mind if I ask you a question? He said, well, you're the consultant. You should know all the answers. And I said, well, not hardly. So I said, why are the machines running? And he laughed at me. He said, because we have a key performance indicator. Well, I, I said, what's that? We have to have 95% utilization on our machines. Now, the fact that we only have 10 people running machines in this department, and we have 20 machines, you'll find that they'll start running at 7 o'clock, 10 of these machines. But the others will continue to run till noon. And I said, well, I mean, that's burning up electricity. It's, it's wearing the machines out. He says, well, maybe you can figure something out. <laughs> and I said, well, why? He said, because the only way we can measure the key performance indicator is this dial up on top of the machine. And if the machine's running, it's considered runnable, quotes around that. And that's the way they hit that key performance indicator. And they hit it every month, surprisingly, <laughs> every yeah. month. They don't have any trouble with that one, so they don't catch any grief. But other stuff that should be done, they don't do. And, they're, and it, that's why we're going broke. That's why you say, and it's one after another. And it's the same thing with an observation feedback process. If you get the wrong leading indicators, or in this case, if you get the wrong key performance indicators or the wrong measure for them, we do stuff that is counterproductive. Oh, so that, that's so like you, when you say you have to do a certain amount of observations and then people just start handing them in, whether or not they actually talk to somebody. Yeah, they, that, that's their key performance indicator. I got to have so many of them in. Now, now, now the problem is they're not doing them. The employees know they're not doing them, but nobody's talking about them. And then they have to come up sometimes with corrective action recommendations and that corrective action uh, recommendation or that lower, that lower score or the higher score are wrong. I, I was at one plant where if you ask them a question, do you know how to run your machine? Who taught you how to run the machine? Do you have written instructions? Do you have uh, schematics for your machines? All those were yes. But of the 10 machines I looked at, eight of them, didn't have a schematic at all. Two of them were fine. The others had instructions for how to run a machine that had been replaced over eight years ago. They took the instructions out of the old machine, put them over in the new machine. They got taught how to run the machine by the machine manufacturer's uh, setup guy. So they knew how to run the machine. But they have been saying all along that we have written instructions. You have none. Zero. Mm -hmm. And without the schematics, the electricians were spending four or five hours checking out the machine and what they might have been able to do in 20 minutes trying to find out what's wrong first before they correct it. So yeah. bad key performance indicators hurt your system. And bad <laughs> leading indicators hurt your system. 
you got to have good ones. So I think we have lost track of the reason we do key performance indicators and the reason we do leading indicators in behavioral-based safety. And what happens is we have to manage the system, and we don't because the system manages us. And all the managers coming out of schools and graduate schools, they become managers of the numbers. They don't become leaders. So we have a huge gap of leaders in industry for sure. That's where I work most of the time. But we don't have very many leaders, whether it's in politics, whether it's in manufacturing, whether it's in military. I think we have great managers, but if the numbers are wrong, we manage to the wrong numbers. Hmm. So the so in that respect, if we walk back to Safe Start, we need to rely on the employees to tell us what's going on. And give us the honest truth. Give us the honest truth, and we have to be able to take it. Yeah. Okay? And with respect to safety, if indeed the self-area is a big issue, we have no idea what that self-area contains because that's them. Whether they're rushed or they're frustrated or they're angry, uh, whether they're fatigued, Sometimes they don't even know how to do the job. They're the only ones that know, and they don't want to say anything because they got to get a number. And if you tell somebody, get this shipment out of here by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, you will get that shipment out by 4 o'clock this afternoon. But don't ask them how they did that because you're not going to be pleased. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Gary, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Maybe we'll have you back on here again later down the road. But again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you, Hunter. Thanks again for listening to this special episode of the Defenseless Moments podcast. And a huge thank you to Gary Higby for joining us. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you can stay updated as new episodes come out. That being said, we'll have another one coming to you in a couple weeks talking about Chapter 3 of the Defenseless Moments book. I'm Hunter Visser, and thank you so much for listening to the Defenseless Moments podcast. Stay safe out there, folks.